Welcome to the PeedsNP, Pearls of Pediatric Evidence-Based Practice. I'm your host, Becky Carson, pediatric nurse practitioner and clinical assistant professor at the Catholic University of America. It's respiratory virus season, and with one baby and one big kid in daycare, we've seen seven, actually eight distinct viruses in our house since November. Most children get six to eight colds per year, with younger children and those in daycare getting even more. Clinically, I'm inundated with parents concerned about fever while gossip swirls about who had what at daycare. But should you test for respiratory viruses? The answer may surprise you. Today, we'll discuss when to test for respiratory viruses and how to talk to parents who demand testing. Before I get to the evidence-based practice that guides my practice, I wanna remind you all that I'm a minimalist. I let my history and physical exam do most of my medical decision-making. And my style makes me keenly aware of resource utilization and medical waste. When I completed some of my training in Tanzania, parents had to pay upfront for every visit, lab, and medication, out of pocket. I had to look a parent in the eye and tell them that they needed to spend their hard-earned money on something for their child, because it was necessary. So if a test wouldn't change my management, I saved the family the money and instead made sure that they understood what to watch out for at home. Fast forward to today. I confidently redirect families' requests for testing when it violates evidence-based practice. And instead, I gain an ally by discussing the science as it meets with their child in front of me. The ability to do this is like a muscle. It gets stronger the more you work it. Some of you may find this difficult and want to avoid confrontation at all costs, preferring placation and pacification to adherence and stewardship. And I'm here to help you navigate those conversations and learn to make decisions in each encounter that are meaningful and founded in the literature. Let's get started. In recent years, the availability of rapid antigen and PCR testing for respiratory viruses has skyrocketed, which has in turn brought down the cost for many of our tests. Lots of them are available in the office or with a quick turnaround as a lab send out. Curiosity killed the cat, and I think that this trend in discovering what virus is causing a mild URI is to the detriment of parents feeling confident in how to take care of their child at home and what red flags to watch for. So you're saying that there's no value in knowing what virus is causing an otherwise well-appearing child with no significant past medical history to have mild URI symptoms? (laughs) You're exactly right with the exception of a few viruses or circumstances that may change the way you manage the illness. Remember that there are thousands of viruses circulating every winter, most with a pretty similar constellation of symptoms, which makes them difficult to distinguish from one another clinically. So when do you need to test for respiratory viruses? Only when the result will change your management. Let's say this again because it's the big take-home only when the test result will change your management. So when is that? Well, let's discuss based on the following assumptions. That we have a previously healthy child with no major underlying conditions, medical history, surgical history, or extenuating social circumstances. We assume a review of systems void of red flags, but perhaps some pertinent positives like fever for less than five days, rhinorrhea, congestion, coughs, or throat, body aches, chills, malaise, fatigue, anorexia, and 
maybe even some mild vomiting and or diarrhea. And we assume a physical exam that reveals a well-appearing, well-hydrated child with no respiratory distress and no evidence of secondary bacterial infection warranting antibiotics. Okay, so but the parent tells you that RSV is going around the school and wants a test. The test exists and you have it in the office. So what do you do? RSV is one of the most common viruses causing bronchiolitis in infants and toddlers, but it causes simple colds in older children and adults. Routine virologic testing will not impact supportive care management of the self-limited virus and therefore is not recommended. The exception to this is patients who are deemed to be high risk, primarily those at risk for apnea or more severe respiratory distress. Apnea is a common complication of RSV, but it's most likely to occur in infants under one month of age. Another population at risk is premature infants born before 32 weeks of gestation because they didn't get that third trimester in utero to develop their lungs. These patients, along with some others with chronic health problems like congenital heart disease, kidney disease, and other high-risk syndromes, are at risk for more severe disease. So yeah, test all of those kids. There aren't any strict parameters for testing, but use your judgment. So if you had a six-week-old former 34-week patient who looked unwell and had mild distress on day two of illness, certainly use the test to guide your management because you know this patient could get worse. But you don't need it for the four-year-old running around the room eating goldfish, even though daycare says RSV is going around. It's not going to change how you take care of this well-appearing big kid. So stop clogging up the system with a test that only adds hype to parental anxiety. Now, does that four-year-old have a one-week-old newborn sibling at home? I might consider a quick RSV test, but I'll certainly spend more time talking about how to keep the children separate, masking indoors, and hand-washing. For my acute care PNPs out there, you may end up ordering nasopharyngeal swabs on your admitted patients with bronchiolitis to aid in isolation and infection control in the hospital. So to review, who needs RSV testing as an outpatient? Infants less than four weeks of age, premature infants less than six months of age when born before 32 weeks of gestation, those with chronic health problems, and those patients who worry you. So what about the flu? It's important to be aware of whether the flu is in your region. The CDC and local health departments typically have a dashboard to help you assess the local positivity rate and therefore your inclination to test. So who should be tested for the flu? Well, the answer actually centers around who needs influenza treatment. The CDC recommends antiviral treatment for any patient with confirmed or suspected influenza who is one, hospitalized, two, has severe, complicated, or progressive illness, three, is at high risk for complications, or four, requires chemoprophylaxis after exposure in certain groups. Okay, so who is at high risk? In our patient population, we worry about children under age two, people with asthma or lung disease, people with chronic health conditions such as neurologic, hematologic, heart, kidney disease, etc., and people who are immunocompromised. Okay, so maybe your patient isn't any of those, but the symptoms started less than 48 hours ago. 
Well, that's good news because they're still a candidate for antiviral therapy. Remember that unlike antibiotics, antivirals are not a cure for the flu. They only relieve some of the symptoms a bit sooner. And antivirals are no substitute for the flu vaccine. You can use this as a teachable moment to encourage flu vaccination next year and remind parents that the flu vaccine does not cause the flu because it's an inactivated vaccine, no matter what they read on Facebook. It won't prevent you from getting the flu either. I liken the vaccine to a seatbelt. It's not going to keep you from having a car accident, but it'll save your life if you get into one. So let's talk about antivirals. You're probably the most familiar with oseltamivir. This is Tamiflu, which comes in a pediatric solution for a five-day treatment course. There are other drugs approved in pediatric patients, but let's stick with Tamiflu for this conversation. Since influenza is a viral, self-limited infection, I remind parents that children really just need symptomatic care. Unless the patient fits into one of those high-risk categories I mentioned above, I consider Tamiflu an optional treatment. The drug will shorten the duration of illness by about one day on average, but it comes with an increased risk for nausea and vomiting. In the newest literature, oseltamivir is associated with a statistically significant reduction in complications, namely acute otitis media, when initiated in less than 48 hours of symptom onset. For my acute care friends, early use of oseltamivir in hospitalized patients on admission day zero or one was associated with shorter hospital stay and lower odds of a seven-day readmission, ICU transfer, ECMO use, and death. While this kind of sounds like a wonder drug, let's put those outcomes in perspective. Remember, I said antivirals are not a cure, and these outcomes are pretty extreme, like as in they prevent death in hospitalized patients. What the drug is not going to do is make symptoms go away and it'll come with an increased risk of nausea and vomiting. I remind you of this because limited symptom resolution combined with common shortages of the drug and the cost of families might make taking Tamiflu something that the family doesn't wanna pursue. So before I offer testing to a patient with less than 48 hours of symptoms, I make sure that they actually wanna take the drug. Okay, so let's summarize the flu too. Children less than two, past medical history of asthma, chronic health problems, or immunocompromised, and symptoms less than 48 hours, plus the desire to take antivirals. Wow, it's starting to feel like a lot of kids in ambulatory care settings can avoid testing. Let's touch on the ever-moving target of COVID. At this point in 2023, a majority of the population has some form of protection against the virus, whether through prior disease or vaccination. And kids generally do pretty well with COVID because they're accustomed to getting novel viruses in their learning immune systems. But COVID remains a serious public health concern. The current CDC guidance tells us that when you have symptoms, get tested. With waning adherence to boosters, surging variants, poor compliance with masks at school, or children who are too young to reliably and constantly wear a mask, I recommend that anyone with symptoms get tested for COVID with a PCR when they come in for evaluation. The PCR test is readily available, pretty quick turnaround in about 24 to 36 hours in most cases, generally still covered at 100% by insurance companies, and it's a more accurate test for the presence 
or absence of COVID. If families have attempted rapid tests at home, remind them that a negative rapid has poor specificity, meaning that the test does a poor job in correctly classifying a patient as disease-free. So I recommend repeating the test every day that the child has fever. When you give families this information, they often realize that one more swab right now for a PCR means the last swab of the illness. So they're more interested in getting the more definitive test. All right, to summarize COVID testing recommendations. If they're symptomatic, test them when you have them in the office. The PCR is a better test, but serial testing using rapid tests at home is an option too. What about strep throat? I wanna reinforce the testing recommendations from the Infectious Diseases Society of America, or IDSA, 2012 guidelines on the management of group A strep pharyngitis in children so that we can avoid testing inappropriately. Strep throat accounts for only about 15 to 30% of pharyngitis in children every year. Let's spin that. 63 to 85% of sore throats are caused by something other than strep. So what's the harm in testing just to make sure that it's not strep? Poor adherence to testing recommendations means that you'll find false positive results on about 25% of children who are asymptomatic carriers, and you'll therefore inappropriately associate their symptoms with strep and reflex an unnecessary course of antibiotics. And if you listen to the last episode of the PEDS-NP on the AOM microbiology update, you'll know that inappropriate antibiotic use is five times more likely to cause harm to a child than good. They may have an allergic reaction, gut irritation-associated diarrhea, C. diff infections, and the possibility for developing chronic diseases later in life. So what does the IDSA say about who should be tested? First, I want you to remember that clinical diagnosis based on signs and symptoms alone is not reliable in the diagnosis of strep throat. So rapid antigen detection tests should be used with a backup culture if negative and absolutely no empiric antibiotics for negative rapid tests. Just wait for the culture. You're really just trying to prevent rheumatic fever, superlative complications, and the spread of infection. So it's okay to wait the 24 hours for the culture to come back. So who should be tested? Well, I think it's easier to think about who should not be tested. Children who should not be tested include those with viral URI symptoms like a runny nose, cough, or congestion. Children under age three, because rheumatic fever is rare in these kids and strep generally doesn't like them. The one exception would be if a child had an older sibling with a known positive test and the child had symptoms. Children with ulcers in the mouth, because strep doesn't cause ulcers. That's herpangina, which is often caused by viruses like Coxsackie. Asymptomatic household contacts. You've got to wait until they show symptoms. Or test of cure in a child with a positive test who completed an antibiotic course. Unless there's some kind of special circumstance where you need to determine if the child is an asymptomatic carrier, in which case, you'd send the test during a period of wellness. All right, now I wanna to touch on the adenoplus point of care conjunctival swab. 
this test is used to detect adenovirus conjunctivitis and therefore prevent unnecessary use of antibiotics in children with viral infections. It's inexpensive, has good specificity, meaning that it's good at identifying disease-free individuals, but its sensitivity has been questioned. One study by Spencer et al. in 2021 reported a 50% positive predictive value and a 98.5 negative predictive value with sensitivity and specificity at 93 and 82% respectively. The take home here, if you have the test available and the child has cold symptoms or sore throat, go ahead and get the test if it's gonna keep you from inappropriately diagnosing bacterial conjunctivitis. We've covered five common wintertime pathogens and talked about when it is and isn't appropriate to test. So you can see my frustration when I read the chart of a patient who has a flu, RSV, and strep testing, because more likely than not, at least one of those tests was inappropriately ordered. Because if you're following the evidence-based practice, a patient that you're worried for RSV in would never be a candidate for strep testing. Use some common sense, follow the guidelines, and consider whether knowing the answer to that test will change how you manage the patient. All of my advice gets a big asterisk on it. There may be special circumstances in every clinical scenario where you might go ahead and send a test. Maybe your patient has a procedure scheduled, is getting on an airplane, has immunocompromised family members, or another provider is requesting the test for their management. Either way, it's okay to be flexible in those extenuating circumstances. But for me, parental concern isn't one of those circumstances. Parental concern means that they care about their child, just like you do, and they're scared. But in order to not cause them harm, keep the clinic flowing, and avoid societal waste that has become, frankly, endemic, you need to explain why knowing the answer isn't going to change a single thing for their child. But you know what will? You compassionately sitting with them and giving them ideas about how to best care for their sick child at home. Supportive care with individual weight-based doses of Tylenol and ibuprofen based on the child's weight that day. Suctioning with a nasal aspirator, using saline, warm showers and nose blowing for older children, teaspoons of honey, fluids, expectations on the coming days, and specific objective return criteria. At the end of the day, don't fight, but lay out expectations for this time and next time. After all, this is a patient-provider relationship that requires mutual trust and partnership. But I generally find that when you share the science and cite the literature in your conversations, caregivers are so grateful for your knowledge and expertise that they follow your recommendations. I hope that you'll like, comment, and subscribe to the Peds NP, where we focus on the practical application of evidence-based practice. Follow me on Instagram at the Peds NP podcast. Email me at thepedsnp at gmail.com. Tell your friends about your favorite episode by texting a link on your favorite streaming platform or share the episodes page of www.thepedsnp.com where you can also read show notes and references. 
There's no financial support or conflict of interest in this or any episode of the PZNP. Remember that this isn't just a podcast. A family may get more knowledge from you when they don't know what virus caused the illness. I'm Becky Carson. Take care.